All right, so t welcome everyone. Today we are live with Michael Jones, who runs the YouTube channel Inspiring Philosophy. It's dedicated to creating apologetic videos and a bunch of different topics. There's some really great stuff there. So I'm, I imagine most of you have seen it, but I'd encourage you to check it out if you haven't already. So thanks for coming on today, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm glad to glad to come on. Yeah. So we are gonna. The plan for today is we're gonna go through some common but bad arguments that atheists will make. You'll see these a lot in any conversation you have online basically and we're going to go over some of these the flaws in them and then if we have time at the end we're going to do a little bit of a Q&A so with that you ready to get to it yeah let's do it all right so we'll just start off with a very common one and that is the idea that there is no evidence for God because I think we see this one a lot it's just like every time that I tweet anything out or that anyone posts anything there's always that atheist that says but there's no evidence. So Michael's just gonna want to go over that one a little bit. Yeah, well what they what they should say is I don't think the evidence that you present is good enough. Because when they say that, it's a little it's a condescending way to say it. Obviously theists present evidence. I spend a hell of a lot of time presenting evidence on my channel. So this idea that there's no evidence is just a total misrepresentation of what's actually happening it's not like theaters going around saying believe in god because it feels really good we obviously are presenting evidence and if you're not familiar with the literature then you're obviously just ignorant so obviously a, a good amount of atheists i don't know how many realize theists present evidence but they would rather say that than just saying i don't think your evidence is good enough for example i'm not a young earth creationist when a young earth creationist says i have evidence of a young earth i don't I try not to say there's no evidence of a young earth. I try to say the evidence that young earth creations present isn't good evidence or it isn't sufficient. So it, it's a, it's kind of a rude remark and it shows they're not really paying attention or they're not even trying. In reality, there, there's tons of evidence for God's existence. The debate on is the debate should be on is is the evidence sufficient enough to warrant belief in God? So, I mean, we can go over tons of evidence from contingency arguments, moral arguments, fine-tuning arguments, the resurrection of Jesus, evidence for there. So, obviously, we, we present evidence, but they don't want to acknowledge that. And if, if you get come across an atheist who does that, chances are they just don't know how to actually address the evidence from theism, and they'd rather just pretend there is no evidence. So, what would you do with the atheist that would say, hey, I want empirical evidence i want to see god you know uh smell taste all those despite the senses you know so how would you converse with one of them i, I would say that's that's shifting the goalposts obviously that's not necessarily how the evidence is going to work just like you would you wouldn't if if, if there were people who didn't think abraham lincoln existed it would be ridiculous for them for them to say well i don't won't believe in him unless i can see touch taste them i mean obviously Abraham Lincoln existed, and you don't actually do empirically see him. You could think of all sorts of other things, like the center of the earth. We can't necessarily see it. That doesn't mean it's not there. Uh, the bottom of the ocean, it's obviously there. We don't see it. Uh, a lot of things, people it just basically accept, even though they cannot see, touch, feel, feel any. You know, it's, it's, it's special pleading of the highest order, and they're not really thinking that one through. Uh, when they say those types of things. They're just applying a special standard to theism, and it could be possibly for emotional reasons. But I don't like to psychoanalyze people like street epistemologists do. Yeah, definitely. So 
I think I just want to elaborate a little more on this because I think that there's going to be a lot of atheists who would talk about the idea that you can't prove that God exists. So like, at least in, in an empirical sense. So they'll say, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's a classic and you can't prove that God exists. So how would you, cause I mean, you probably can't, but I'm just curious how you'd interact with someone that says prove to me that God exists. Well, I would say that you, you can't prove anything. That's such a dumb quest because Science doesn't deal in proof. Even going back to Karl, Pop, Karl Popper, he talks about falsification. Science only falsifies uh, certain theories. And later philosophers of science, like Thomas Kuhn, Henry Lakatos, Paul Firebend, said that doesn't even really capture what science is. Science doesn't, but they all agree science doesn't deal in proofs. Science deals in all sorts of other ways to explain things, but it's not proof. So they wouldn't, they, they don't have scientific proof that uh, black holes exist. It's just the most likely explanation of the given data. So it, it's it's special pleading. They would not, they don't have proof for numerous other things they believe in, but they, apparently they need proof for God's existence. It, it comes down to what is the best explanation of reality. Is a theistic worldview going to ex explain far more data or is a naturalistic worldview is? And what I argue on my channel is that from the moral argument, contingency arguments, digital physics argument, cosmic conscious argument, that theism can explain all of these things. Ethics, consciousness, can the origins of space-time, uh, all of these things with one simple explanation, namely that there was a universal necessary mind that the universe is contingent upon. Okay, so I've, I've explained all these things with one explanation, and naturalists or materialists have to come up with all sorts of different convoluted explanations to get around these things right then and there you it's you know they when you start looking at the evidence theism builds on theism doesn't violate occam's razor because when you deal with naturalists they they'll come up with all different theories to explain these different arguments that we use for god's existence and so we would just say that shows theism is far more plausible and far more parsimonious yeah definitely so i think this is a good transition into the next uh bad arguments that atheists make. Basically that whenever a theist or a Christian presents an argument for God's existence, they'll say, basically, it's God of the gaps. Where if you look at something like the origin of the universe, the fine tuning, the design of life, things like that, they'll say, hey, you know, that's really just God of the gaps idea. Like eventually science is gonna figure it out. I mean, I know that, I mean, he's not the most scholarly atheist, but Richard Dawkins always talks about how, you know, like the, the origin of the universe is waiting for his, Next, the next Dawkins, or I read, I was reading a book by Stephen Hawking talking about the origin of the universe, and he's like, Hey, this is like a great scientific mystery, but don't throw God into it. That's just scientifically irresponsible. We're going to solve this in the next hundred years. So, <laughs> how would you look at the what, what do you look out like st for starters when you talk about someone says, Hey, this is all just God of the gap stuff? Yeah, I love that Aaron Raw tries to claim that every argument for God's existence is just a God of the gaps. It just shows he's assuming naturalism. So any evidence for theism must be a gap argument because we already know theism is false. That's the truth of it. When anyone, anyone ever time, when anyone ever says, "Oh, uh, you know, that's a god of the gaps argument," it just shows you they're actually the one committing the logical fallacy, circular reasoning. They're assuming naturalism or materialism or some non-theistic worldview is already true. So any evidence a theist use must just be a gap argument because we already know theism is false. It's just circular reasoning. So they're just saying, well, it's a gap in our 
knowledge and they mean our naturalistic worldview. It's just a gap in our naturalistic worldview that we already have. And why we know theism is as false. It's just circular reasoning. It's a horrible argument, and it's also a lazy argument. It's so just goes to show you when people like R and Raw use that type of argument, it's just how lazy they're being. They're not actually looking at the evidence and they're just assuming the worldview. It's funny that he says every argument for God's existence is a fallacy when his arguments against theism is uh, is very clearly a fallacy. But, you know, he doesn't want to admit that. So, no, th this is a bad argument. And when people say, well, you know, we'll just solve this in the future, that is a gap argument. You're appealing to the unknown knowledge of future humans and using that to fill in the gap. Okay, the, the truth is we have to go on the evidence we have today. It could change tomorrow. And if that ha happens, we need to change and update our beliefs. But unless that happens, you know, we, we should not assume our worldview and just expect people in the future and confirm what we already believe to be true. We have to go on the data that we have now. And right now, theism explains far more with far less. And also notice when they say this is a god of the gaps, they're admitting their worldview has holes in it. They just call them gaps, and that makes it more. For some reason, they can get that past a lot of theists. But it's, they're admitting there's a bunch of holes in their argument. There, there, there's a bunch of holes in their worldview that they can't explain this. They can't explain that. They can't, but theism can, and they don't like that, so they just claim God of the gaps. What they're really saying is there's all these holes in my worldview, but I'm still going to pretend that it's true regardless of the evidence that I can't explain. Yeah, definitely. So I think this kind of goes with uh... – Let's talk about maybe like the idea of that demonstrating that the supernatural exists. Cause I know there's a lot of like Matt Dillon, honey, I was just watching a debate with him. He talks about like, there's no evidence that you can demonstrate that a supernatural realm exists. So then that you sh we, sh we shouldn't even consider the We shouldn't consider the supernatural realm and it, everything should be considered naturally. Well, I would ask him, you know, I'd just say, let's go back to the evidence. Can you explain everything in natural terms? And the obvious answer is no. I mean, look at this beautiful face. You can't explain this in natural terms. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, but, you're, you're, you're right there. <laughs> I, but no, it's just, that's a ridiculous argument. First of all, the supernatural naturalistic much sense. What does that even mean? I, I, I've never got a clear defining line on something that's natural versus supernatural. People say, well, anything that we can empirically see. Okay, so are corks not... Uh, natural because we can't actually see corks to infer they exist from evidence. you know we're, we're black holes supernatural until we could take that picture like what within the past year uh, i mean this is a it's a ridiculous distinction it doesn't make any sense yeah man you're you're totally right there i agree with you and i think that a lot of times there's so many uh reports of the supernatural i know a lot of them may be kind of off the deep end so how do you differentiate so this is something i mean this is a little bit off topic here but talking about let's say like the i the disciples talked about how they saw the risen jesus with let's say like me waking up in the middle of the night looking out my window and seeing a ufo sighting so what because mm -hmm. this is a lot of the time they'll say hey that's the same thing right there so how do you differentiate between those two things right it's not about it's about the quality of the testimony it's about what evidence you can present to strengthen the testimony. If you woke up and said you saw a UFO, I'd be like, okay, whatever. But if we lived in a culture where we were, where people were being put to death for preaching UFOs, and you said, I really did see one, and I don't really care if I die for it, that might raise the probability that what you're saying is true. So if you take it to the grave, that's that's a good good indication. If some of your testimony meets criteria of embarrassment, that might be a good way. Uh, if you can be confirmed by other reports, okay, that's going to raise probability. 
So it's about the quality of the testimony, not just the testimony. And when they say same, it really shows you they're not paying attention to the data or the arguments. Because again, not all testimony is the same. How could you even assert that? I mean, obviously, it's all the same. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I want to keep it going here. So one of the next thing we talked about is the no the idea of the no true Scotsman. Now I'm not, I wasn't super familiar. I looked into this a little bit, but it's basically that if I'm right here, I mean, I could be totally wrong and a heretic and burn at the stake for this and being wrong. But the way, from the way I understand it is basically you look at, let's say like, for example, radical Islam and you used to have these like ISIS killing people. And then, um, a modern Muslim say, Hey, they're not Muslims. And, that's kind of where I get confused from beyond there. So maybe you want to talk about what that is, the no true Scotsman fallacy and kind of like what's wrong with it. Well, I'm, I'm, I would almost kind of agree with Muslims on that because I need to be fair. If you can actually demonstrate that they're not holding to the core tenets of Islam. Now, I don't know. I'm not really an expert on that. But if you can demonstrate that, then you might, then I would be okay, whatever, fine. Because, you know, I want to be fair. Uh, I don't, but I'm not an expert on Islam. That's more of like David Wood's area. Uh, so I wouldn't really want to comment on that necessarily. But what a new true, true Scotsman fallacy is, it's like a universal generalization. Uh, it's basically was coined by Anthony Flew. Um, and basically, just imagine, he basically, it's you can't dismiss someone as a Scotsman for arbitrary reasons. So if you see a Scotsman eating porridge a certain way and you say, no, you're not a Scotsman, no, no Scotsman eats their porridge that way. And they go, well, I really am a Scotsman. Here's my documentation. And they can, they would then reply, well, no true Scotsman eats their porridge that way. You're dismissing their, their Scotsmanship uh, because of an arbitrary reason. Obviously, how you eat your porridge doesn't determine if you're a Scotsman or not. So that's how the no true Scotsman foundation should be used. If you're going to apply that to Christianity, uh, you could say like, uh, well, you're not a true Christian unless you believe in the rapture. Or you're not a true Christian uh, unless you believe in very specific interpretation of like Ephesians 5. Okay, obviously that's not required to be a Christian. That's not core doctrine of Christianity. That's a that's a issue. So what a lot of atheists do abuse this fallacy to the hill. Like they obviously don't know what this is. They just kind of throw it out when they don't have any other arguments. And this happened in my debate with Arn Raw during the Q and A. They don't understand the fallacy. They just use it whenever they feel it's necessary. So they'll just say, like, if you point out that this person is advocating that we go around and murder homosexuals, and I say, well, they're not being a true Christian because that obviously goes against core doctrines of Christianity. They'll go, that's a no true Scotsman fallacy because you're just dismissing that they're being a Christian because they don't agree with that specific thing you said. No, they're denying a very core doctrine of Christianity. Jesus did not command that. He commanded us to love our enemies, to pray for them, never commanded them to kill. He's not a true Christian. He's advocating things Christ did not command. Okay, so he's denying very core doctrines of Christianity. Therefore, it's not a no true Scotsman fallacy because it's not an arbitrary reason. And the way you deal with this when an atheist says this, this phrase, like they know what it means, is you go to analogies. If you watch the debate between Godless Engineer and the Distributist, he goes on about the godless engineer goes on about how like you're not a true humanist if you would advocate the murder of people because humanism is completely against that and it's like well yeah obviously neither is christianity we don't want people to be murdered so if humanists do this if humanists are not going to own the french revolution and say yeah they're humanists 
No, they were going to say flat out they were not real humanists because they were advocating things like the reign of terror and the great terror and the murder of all these innocent people over arbitrary reasons. They were not true humanists. I go, okay, now apply that same logic. Just get to say, well, they said they're a Christian, therefore they are. No, they have to hold to the core doctrines, just like any atheist would say. You're not a humanist unless you hold to core doctrines of humanism. Okay, the same logic applies both ways. Yeah, 100%. So I'll just transition to the next question here. This is one I've actually seen a lot recently, and that's the idea that the New Testament was put together at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, which is really just kind of weird. Um really no evidence if you want to talk about something that actually has no evidence it's probably this but how would you what do you look at when you said when you hear someone say oh yeah it was just your bible your, your new testament was put together at nice yeah how do you start where do you go with that conversation i just go what's your source that's all you get to say and every time they never have a source you have to remember sometimes you need to learn from how atheists the very intelligent atheists respond to people Especially, watch a lot of atheists debate young earth creationists. A lot of times they just go, what's your source for that? What's your evidence for that? Apply the same logic with them. They, they, a lot of them go crazy when you do it because they, they don't expect it. Watch my debate with Matt Dillhunty. Around like one, around like the hour and 18 minutes in, I, I, I told him that he needs a source and he didn't know how to respond uh, or so. And he kind of like, you know, went back a little bit. He couldn't, he didn't expect me to say that. It was my, my favorite part of the whole debate. But... Just ask them for a source half the time. They, they need to provide evidence for that. That's a positive claim they have made. So they need to provide evidence for it. Same when they say like Christianity causes X, like it causes murder, causes war. What's your source? You know, in nine times out of 10, they won't have a source. They do just read the source and see what it says. A lot of times you'll find out they don't need to actually read the source. This happened to me just the other day. I just went and read the source and I said, it doesn't say what you're saying here. <laughs> so just... <laughs> do that and then i always go if they made up the new testament why do we have things like p75 you know which is a large collection of john and luke which exists prior to nicaea and no scholar today says the canon was made up at nicaea if someone says this they just didn't do their homework and luckily i think that objection is kind of dying out recently it was more popular about 10 years ago but as of late i think it's kind of going away yeah what about the idea that they kind of picked and choose what was in the New Testament around that time. Cause you have like, you know, Constantine orders the 50 New Testaments. I think it was like 350-ish AD. And that's kind of like when they're like, a lot of people say, hey, that's when the New Testament is finalized. They picked those books. Thomas yep. was left out. The Apocalypse of Peter, thing like that, were just left out. So they only put to, put in what fitted with what they wanted their beliefs to be. Yep. That's true. I would say absolutely. That was, that's, that's, Today, we call that peer review. If a bunch of uh, people submit articles to a journal and they reject them, we wouldn't say, well, those, those scientists, they're just picking and choosing what they want in there. No, they're doing peer review. They're going through and they're looking at these documents and they're saying, okay, this one is not attested by any early church fathers. Uh, we have very little evidence for it. It contradicts what the earliest eyewitnesses said, like Paul. Uh, so and it, it, we don't see it until late, like late second century, when it comes to Thomas. So we're not going to use it. Uh, they did peer review. What's wrong with that? Why is it bad when the uh, the people when the early church fathers put in the canon together did it, but not bad when peer when authors who are uh, editors of a peer reviewed journal do the same type of logic? 
And yeah, it took a while to get the can in the right, and I'm glad it did because I didn't want them to just you know throw a bunch of stuff in there and hope it works. I'm glad it took a lot of years and debate to figure out which are the most reliable and earliest documents we could put in there. You think it's possible that the people who they made any mistakes? Like, there's a book that is. I mean, I don't. I can't think of any books that are similar to like the content of the New Testament that would have been that are claimed by the authority of impossible. You think it's possible that any books were left out of the New Testament by mis maybe not mistake, but they just left them out? It depends on what we think we're trying to do. If we were trying to like look for every possible inspired document, I don't think that's what they were trying to do. I think they were trying to canonize the faith. What do we believe and what do we teach? Here is here are the documents that show what we believe and what we teach. Could some have been left out? Maybe, maybe the Shepherd of Hermas would have helped. I don't think so. Maybe the the epistles of Clement of Rome might have helped. Maybe, I mean, you could have included them. He was a disciple of Peter, but it wasn't necessary. They're just trying to give you what they believed. And I think they're being quite inclusive. They included all the early gospels that were available. Four. There aren't there isn't any evidence any other early gospels existed. They included all the gospels that were from the first century. Yeah, actually, that's another uh, common objection I just thought of going to the Gospels. And it's basically the idea that the Gospels say that Jesus resurrected, but really no other source. You like you have outside of the first century, they'll be like, hey, you know, Josephus was obviously fabricated. So obviously you can't trust him. So if you're looking for the idea that Jesus resurrected, you're only looking at the four Gospels within like the first century. Yeah, I think it's an argument from silence. Uh, that's not a really good argument to begin with. Uh, just, you know, of course, we wouldn't expect non-Christians to talk about the resurrection. They weren't Christians. They didn't believe in the resurrection. It's like if you scoured my videos and go, how come you don't mention any Rastafarian miracles? Because I don't believe they were real. Like, what, what do you want from me? <laughs> it's like we wouldn't expect a non-Christian to talk about Christian ideas that much. We're so lucky that we have so many as it is. Yeah, 100%. I agree with you. Good. Four Gospels. So here's another thing. I'm just kind of going off on a tangent here a little bit because I'm thinking about these the Gospels now. So what about the idea that John was just kind of like they try to fill in the gaps, basically, like the idea that Jesus of Jesus's divinity comes in with the early church, the very early church. So then the author of John, who's most likely John, just kind of puts in all the Jesus divinity stuff in the New Testament. Yep. Of course, he was filling in gaps. That doesn't mean he was making it up. I mean, I think the gospel authors were filling in gaps. So uh, look at those the, in 1 Corinthians 15. He cites an early creed. He talks about an appearance to James and an individual appearance to Peter. He's just sort of reciting knowledge they already know about. He's just reminding them of this. So then the gospels come on. They don't mention those. Why? Well, I think they were supplementing what the early uh, oral traditions were, uh, were already there. So they were just trying to give more additional information to what the uh, early church already knew and espoused. And I think then people later in life were like, well, we want to hear more about Jesus. So John wrote his gospel to give them more information. I don't see that as any problem. It's like just asking more eyewitnesses, tell me more. I mean, what's, what's wrong with it? It doesn't mean they made it up. Yeah, definitely. So what about, because I think that they'll say, hey, you know, the, the, the divinity of Jesus is a pretty core doctrine of Christianity, the idea that Jesus is God. So wouldn't the uh, early writers like Paul 
they'll say a Paul never mentions it. The gospels really don't. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke never really mentioned that Jesus is divine. So you could, and I feel like they say, you know, that's a pretty important thing. So they're just leaving out. So, so obviously the Bible is corrupted because X, Y, Z. So I'm thinking of doing this video. I don't know the time right now, but um, so N.T. Wright wrote like a 1500 page book called Paul and the Faith Faithfulness of God. Um, and I read it. If Yeah, well, if oh you have the God. time. <laughs> yeah, I will show it to you. <laughs> Dude, that's a, oh my God. I think, not, hold on. It's two, it's two books. That's how big it is. It's two books. And my dogs ripped off the cover of this book because, you know, they're dogs. But this is how big it is. And it's a great book. Um, it went through and I just highlighted a bunch of it. So, geez, maybe ran, a, ran another page. So there, there's your highlights throughout. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a book. Uh, but he has got a whole section on Paul's monotheism, and he argues extensively that Paul, a lot of times, alludes to, or he actually will talk about Jesus, but he will quote Old Testament passages that are about Yahweh, and he'll say, "Huh," he'll he'll use these Old Testament passages to talk about Jesus in really obvious ways where he's clearly showing that Jesus is Yahweh. And so that's a missed a lot of times because we don't, we're not that familiar with the Old Testament, but the section on monotheism in there is actually really great. And he explains why Paul is being a monotheist and saying that Jesus is God. So I would say that's quite early. Uh, as well as Jesus, you know, throughout the Synoptic Gospels calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel 7, which is this divine figure that rides on the clouds and is given dominion and authority and people worship him. You also have to remember in the Old Testament, only Yahweh rides the clouds. No one else can. Yet the Son of Man rides the clouds. So the Son of Man is Yahweh. And so if you look at people like Michael Heiser, check out my video, The Trinity in the Old Testament, there's a lot of evidence of this early Trinitarian ideas in the Old Testament. Yeah. So let's keep going on this topic a little bit here. So why don't you think that the New Testament explicitly says like, hey, Jesus is God. This is an important doctrine. Well, because that's not how Jews would speak of that. You, you have to remember they're, they're, in, they're surrounded by polytheists. So if Jesus would have just said, I'm God, well, the Jews didn't have a word for God. Now, I know that's hard to believe, but they didn't because when you and I say God, we think of an omnipotent eternal creator. To them, that was just Yahweh. Uh, they had a term called Elohim, but the term Elohim meant any any spiritual being. So when Samuel is brought up by the necromancer, when Saul summons him back in the Old Testament, he's called an Elohim. Uh, angels are referred to as Elohims. It just meant any spiritual being. They didn't have a word for God like we do. They just said Elohim, and we translate that as God. It's not a really good translation, but it's the best we can do with English. So just keep that in mind. So Jesus goes around and makes clear indications that he's Yahweh, numerous places, like him walking on the water. That's an indication he's Yahweh uh, because it goes back to a psalm where, you know, he will have power over the sea and everything like that. Uh, Michael Heiser talks about it. Yeah, 100%. So I'll transition to another one of these bad arguments that atheists will make. And this is one I've actually seen many, many times now. And that's the idea that, the Gospels basically just created a Messiah that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. You'll see this, especially with like the idea of the virgin birth and the word 
Hebrew doesn't actually mean virgin, but the people who would interpret it, they just interpret it to be virgin. And so that I, so how would you maybe a basic idea of how you would respond to someone says that the gospel is just created a Messiah that would make the people of Israel who are occupied by the Romans feel better? I would say yes and no. In some sense, they kind of did reinterpret a lot of these Old Testament passages, but I don't think that's a bad thing. That was part of the cultural context. Uh, that's kind of what they did. So Paul Copen wrote an article on this. I think it's like, did the New Testament authors misquote the Old Testament? And he basically explains what they're doing is they're not saying Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. They're speaking of Jesus as he sort of reenacted the Old Testament. So think of a, a very obvious example, him going into the wilderness for 40 days is a reenactment of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So his baptism is, of course, a reenactment of crossing the Red Sea, uh, these types of things. Um, feeding of the 5,000, it's, it's a reenactment of something some of the prophets did. Uh, that happens a lot. His triumphant entry into Jerusalem is also reenactments. A lot of this happens. And so they just sort of looked through the Old Testament and just found comparisons to make and said, see that we can compare this to Jesus did. So uh, you have to think Bruce uh, Molina and Richard uh, Rob, uh, Roba uh, wrote a, uh, something called Social Science Commentary in the Synoptic Gospels. And this is one of the things they note is that uh, a lot of times the gospel authors will sh will look at things in the Old Testament and they go, or they'll look at things in Jesus that Jesus did and they'll go, what can I compare this to into the Old Testament? And they'll just find things to compare to and they'll make these connections on purpose. People do that today. This is why we call random football games David and Goliath stories. Or, you know, you'll see people comparing their life events to being Daniel and the Lions. People mm -hmm. just do that. The gospel officers did that much in part of the context, far more than it is for us. Yeah. So what about the idea that maybe Jesus is a legend, not not the pagan myth idea. That's obviously I'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> that's but, bonkers. Do uh, some really great, yeah. Use some really great videos on that, by the way. So yeah, Thanks. but we'll go we'll go for something else later for now. We'll, I can't talk right now. Um, we'll do that later. So the idea that what if they just you know they just read and like oh here's Isaiah fifty three. So we're just gonna create Jesus to be crucified or the Psalms twenty three kind of the same idea. Um, they just kind of looked at these prophecies and made a figure that fit them oh so wait they made a figure that fit them what do you mean by that like they made like so like maybe like that jesus could have existed but they just try to make these they, oh. they see the old testament prophecies and they just kind of oh i see what you're saying all together yeah, when I, they wrote the figure and said hey yeah yeah, I don't think that works for the same reason. Just because you draw from the Old Testament, that doesn't mean you made up a person. That, that when when Christ when Jesus misses this, do that, do this. I mean, Robert Price spends a hell of a lot of time trying to do this, and it's it's just kind of I just kind of chuckle when he does it. I'm like, you're wasting time. Like, like scholars know that when they looked into the Old Testament and make comparisons to Jesus, that doesn't help your case that Jesus didn't exist. I mean, that's compatible with both views. It's just a waste of time for them when they do this. So just because they look to the Old Testament to make comparisons, that doesn't mean these people didn't exist. Virgil does this with Augustus Caesar. He compares Augustus Caesar all the time to tales in Roman mythology, various different gods. That doesn't mean Augustus Caesar didn't exist. Yeah, definitely. So 
I'll just go on the next one here because, I mean, these are pretty bad arguments. You don't have to have a lot of whole detail. <laughs> so this is probably, I think, the worst argument against Christianity of the history of the world. And I think any atheist that says this is really just not thinking. And that's the idea that there's 2,500 gods and the Christian gods just one more. So basically we're all just atheists and Christians are believing one less God, believing one more God than the atheists do. Yeah, when they do this, it shows you they don't know what they're talking about. Because it's not about the quantity within a belief, it's about the quality of the belief itself. There are polytheists. So there's a guy named Ocean, who I've debated in the past on capturing Christianity. He's a polytheist. Does that mean he's more of a theist than me because he believes in many gods? No, that'd be silly. It, you Atheists would use the exact same arguments on him they would use on me. Perhaps. Maybe they may not use certain arguments because I believe in omnipotent God. He doesn't. But they would not say that he's more of a theist than I am because it's obviously about the quality of beliefs, not quantities. So they're obviously sure they're not really trying when it comes to this. They're just, you know, you're just trying to show, throw anything out and hope that it sticks. Uh, it, it would be like if I held to a pluralist view within moral realism. I'm using that as a very example, but there's different types of moral realism. Well, they would not say that you're just, you're just, if I, if I was a monistic moral realist, as I only believed in one virtue, they wouldn't say, well, you're just one, vir one less virtue away from being a moral subjectivist. No, that's not how that would work. That'd be a dumb argument. But no, this is the type of arguments they make, and they obviously have not thought these through. It's about the quality of a belief. Theism is, you know, is part of a worldview, and theism typically entails the idea there's only we believe in a god. But if I was a polytheist, that wouldn't necessarily mean they're more of a theist. So it's just it just doesn't even make sense when they say this. Because you're not really even attacking why I believe there is one God. You're just uh, trying to count. Okay, good. You can count to one. Good, good job. <laughs> I mean, I guess sometimes with the atheists, it really feels like that's about all they can do. Um, so some. I mean, there's some very smart atheists. I there are some very that. smart ones, yeah. And I guess it goes both ways where there's people that just don't aren't really smart at all. So, yeah, I guess that's a little unfair there. Um so what about the idea that faith is blind? Like you talk about, like there'll be these atheists that'll say, Hey, you know, faith is blind. I don't want to have blind belief. I, you know, um, I'm trying to think here. I just lack a belief. So I don't have faith in anything. And really it's just you guys. And I'm not going to have faith. Faith is for people that just want to believe something. Yeah, this is a ridiculous argument. And I just debated R and raw. And I tried to really press him in the cross examination on this. Uh, but because yeah, they just they just make this up. There's no there's no definition that says this is this is what faith is. Faith is not you know a belief without evidence. It's not blind. It, faith is not is not. It, it's it's just the same thing as trust. That's really what it is. You you don't <laughs> trust itself is not blind belief. It's it's basically something you get from evidence or no evidence. But it can be either way. It doesn't entail there has to be necessarily no evidence. So when they when they do this, they're just not even trying. They're trying to define our terms for us and what we mean by these things. And they've not looked at the original Greek. They've not looked at how this what this word meant in Greek. And anyway, just go watch my day with Aaron Raw. It's 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 it was it was almost kind of comical the way he was trying to get around this. But no scholar defines pistis, the Greek word for faith, as blind. It would be absurd. 
So atheists are just making things up and they're not even trying. They're trying to define our terms first, which is quite rude. Yeah, 100%. We should, oh, shit. Um, we should never put words into someone else's mouth. That's one of the most annoying things I think that we can do. So let's talk a little bit about, because you have a lot of videos on this, the idea that Jesus came from pagan myths. Because I know there's this kind of like, this picture spreader that's been spreading around. And it's basically like these eight or six or eight like pagan gods. And it's like, hey, they're all born of a virgin, da 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 resurrected, things like that. So and they'll say, hey, you know, Jesus is really just a copy of these pagan myths. So I'm just curious what your response would be to that idea. Yeah, that's just that's just stupid. I mean, there's no other word for it. I just I read a book uh, a few months ago called The Riddle of Resurrection by Trigvay Medinger. And so he goes through and he's arguing that, you know, he argues that Baal was a dying and rising God. He argues that Melquart was a dying and rising God. And he argues that Tammuz was a dying and rising God. I don't agree with him on Tammuz. I don't agree with him on Baal. I might, he might have a case on Melquart. Okay, so, uh, but he gets to the epilogue and he says, by the way, this has nothing to do with what Christians believe when it came to Jesus. That's a completely different thing. So someone who is even writing on this, he says, yeah, that's a dumb idea. There's no scholar that says this outside of like Richard Carrier. And, you know, he's, you know, very fringe and far out there and holds us some pretty crazy ideas and misquotes a lot of scholars and whatnot. It, it's kind of comical sometimes to read it. But so it, it's just a dumb argument. You obviously are not even trying. You're not familiar with the scholarship on it. Just read uh, Trigvay Menninger's book. Go, go through it and read his arguments. He, he makes some pretty good points along the way. I ultimately agree more with Mark Smith when it comes to dying and rising gods. Uh, so, but you know, it, this idea that it, Christianity was based on that, there's just no evidence for it. In fact, there's another book written by a guy, a guy, a guy named Glenn Bowersock. Uh, he wrote a book, I believe it's called History is Fiction that I read a while back. And he basically argues that a lot of the, the pagan mystery cults were borrowing from Christianity when it comes to people like Philostratus, uh, Philostratus's life of Apollonius, uh, Dionysus cults, Attis cults. They were the ones borrowing from the Christians in the second and third centuries and sort of adjusting their cults to compete with Christianity. So Jan Bremer and Glenn Bowersock argue the borrowing was going the other way around, ironically. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think yeah, someone just like replied to one of my tweets or something. They just basically talked about, hey, you know, Jesus is a pagan myth. Like Even Bart Ehrman agrees that he's a pagan myth. And I just kind of looked at that. I'm like, I'm pretty sure he doesn't look that way. And I just looked it up because I was just like, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't wrong here. And he wrote a whole book about how Jesus was a real person, not from pagan myths. So I was just kind of, I was like, oh man, that's kind of, yeah. like when people say that they're an atheist because of the logic, especially people like that, I'm just like, no, this just doesn't make sense. It's when you say something like that and it's just kind of way out there. Yeah, I come across a lot of atheists that are just like they're just very unfamiliar with all of these things. It's unfortunate, but and then they 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 talk. I love that they just call themselves we're the rationalists. I'm like that is just I, I I'm sorry, but when I hear this stuff, when people call themselves or when they name their channel something like rationalists or you know we're the rational yeah. thinkers, I'm always like that is the that's so that, that comes across as kind of a little arrogant. I mean, maybe my channel is I'm inspired. I'm inspiring. Maybe, but I don't know. I just get so sick of atheists constantly calling themselves rationalists. I mean, you don't, you don't, you don't have a trademark on that word. Maybe I'm being unfair. I don't know. No, I think you're being pretty fair. I mean, you can't just kind of 
presuppose that something's true, which is what they do oftentimes, and say, hey, I'm being rational here. That's not really – like the Kalam argument video from Rationality Rules, like that's just kind of like you took the simplest oh, form man. of the argument and just said, hey, I see, I just – I don't even – I don't even like the Kalam. Even I was like, that video is horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad, no doubt. And yeah, Capri Cap Cameron's doing some pretty cool stuff with that. Just talking about how stupid that video is. Um, so what about the idea? So this is the next one I want to go to. The idea that there is no outside evidence for the martyrdom of the apostles. Basically kind of like, because I see this like from some people that I've looked at, like this one guy that always just is annoying tweets dumb questions but this one actually made me think a little bit it's basically like hey show me that the apostles died for their faith but don't use the bible to prove the bible don't use those early church fathers letters of talking about how like peter died or like things like that so yeah i always say stop that that's not good scholarship the very liberal scholars even use the new testament so don't sit here and tell me i can't use the new testament when very when scholars use the New Testament as historical sources, they may not agree with everything in there, but they use them as historical sources. Stop that stupid argument. You just can't say, you can't use this one ancient document because I don't like it. That's a bad argument. Uh, you may disagree with things in there, but make arguments why they may have gotten X, Y, and Z wrong. But even the very liberal scholars will say they got X, Y, and Z wrong, but they got A, B, and C right. So bad argument to begin with. And outside of the New Testament, first of all, we have Tacitus, talking about how the Christians were persecuted under Nero. Suetonius talks about how the um, the Jews were expelled from Rome on account of Crestus, so there's persecution there. Uh, Clement of Rome talks about how Peter and Paul were martyred in Rome, so you have that as well. Uh, Paul talks about persecutions that happened. Acts talks about how there were martyrs and whatnot. So we do have numerous sources talking about this. Is some left to le legend? Yeah. We're not sure if Thomas really was martyred in India. Maybe, maybe not. But I didn't use that as part of my case for the resurrection. So I went on the sources that we actually have. And if you have any, if you want to see the full full list of the reliable sources, just see that, just see part two of my resurrection series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I'm trying to think. There's like Peter, Paul, James, the brother of Jesus, and James of. Yeah. Well, there's another one. James, I, I forgot. James is mentioned in um, Josephus for being martyred. Yeah, James' brother of Jesus, and then I'm trying. And then there's James, the son of Zebed Zebedee. Is that right? He's the other one that like there's really strong evidence for. Yeah, well, I think it's an axe. I'd, I'd have to go back and check my sources on that specifically. Uh, but the idea that people say you can't you can't use the New Testament is a is a pretty bad argument. Yeah, I mean, like I think like I was just like looking at the martyrdom of, I just, I can never say that word. I always said it like mortar, but now I say a martyr. I say it right. But they talk about the martyrdom, martyrdom of Peter. And basically it's in John where basically like Jesus is prophesizing, 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 oh my gosh, I can't speak, about how Jesus, about how Peter is going to become a martyr. And yeah. basically you can look at it as a Christian well. and say, hey, you know, Jesus is prophesizing and he becomes a martyr. Or you can say, hey, John just made up made up the whole thing and made Jesus sound like it, but he's still a martyr for the faith. So, I mean, there's really great evidence for the martyrs. Um, so this is another objection. This is more of a cultural one rather than a evidence-based one. It's basically the idea that the Bible is out of touch with today's society. Let's say it's something like homosexuality. Like They'll say, hey, you know, homosexuality is obviously – okay, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just the Bible is outdated on this topic. And you can even see this with, like, the liberal churches and the liberal Christians. Like, there's 
downtown in my town, there's a bunch of churches, with just rainbow flags, you know? And so how do you look at that idea? Well, I, I, I say, yeah, that's basically what every failed empire has said. You, know, you, you Christians are out of touch with the way things are. I mean, yeah, the Bible is out of touch with today's society. Duh. <laughs> we don't ever, we never said anything different. Of course it is. Uh, we don't agree with what today's society is preaching in a lot of ways. So, of course, we're out of touch. It doesn't mean it's wrong. Just stating the obvious is not an argument. Well, of course, we're on different, we're on different pages. Let's just argue which is more likely true, which is going to be mo the most beneficial. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, yeah, I agree. Um, so that's really all the bad arguments I had. I don't know if you have any more you see commonly, but I mean, just kind of like, it's almost kind of sad to me a little bit to see like, you know, like I get having a strong, like there's, a, you can make an intellectual case for being an atheist, but I think it's also, it's kind of sad sometimes when people bring up these really bad arguments that are obviously not true. Yeah, well, they're not thinking that hard. I mean, there's some really bad arguments that I've seen Christians use, don't get me wrong. Uh, and I've sometimes even scolded Christians for using those bad arguments. But, I mean, the, what kind of bothers me is just atheists just, a lot of times, unfortunately, I get them, they come across as quite arrogant, and they pretend to be the objective rationalist that just wants the evidence, and that's just not true. Just be honest with yourself. That's just not the way people are. We all are biased to some degree, and we have to fight every day to limit that. If you can accept that, that's going to that's just going to be better for yourself and for how you present yourself and your arguments. Don't just pretend you're just this objective, rational, unbiased person that just wants evidence. It's not who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think oftentimes, I think people on both sides can be guilty, but people will believe what they want to believe and try to justify it rather than actually trying to figure out what's true. So, I mean, actually, I'm actually kind of curious. What are some of your bad arguments that Christians will make sometimes? Just throw it in the opposite direction here. A lot of Christians will just say, you know, you're, if you're just an atheist because you just want to sin, don't say that. Uh, maybe <laughs> don't psychoanalyze people. You don't know everything about them. And when you say that, even if you're right about them, it doesn't come across the right way. Jesus said to be as wise as serpents or as crafty as serpents and as gentle as doves, not as loud as a baboon and as angry as a tiger. You, you got to come across and an understanding way and uh, a polite way uh, in a reasonable way. So, you know, try to, try to meet them where they are and try to meet them and present the evidence, present your case, but don't say stuff like that. That's one I can think of off the top of my head. I've heard, and it's just a bad argument. Yeah, totally. Um, there's actually one more I totally forgot about here, but this has been more, uh, this argument has been popularized very recently because of the, genetically modified skeptically about the puddle argument basically he just calls frank Turek a liar and it's kind of goes a little far oh, there the puddle argument. Um, yeah so how do you respond to the puddle argument uh that's just entirely missing the point of the fine-tuning argument so the problem is is they would say like you know the puddle just perfectly fits in there well you know it's not so much the fact that something is fits with what it's in it's what the quality of what is in there excuse me so a puddle is not something that's complex as like intelligent life so 
this is a bad argument because it doesn't just simply compare in terms of quality. You know, there's nothing more insane about this universe than life itself, and let alone intelligent life, which is just beyond belief that that can happen. How did that happen? Well, the fine-tuning argument kind of explains there was this astronomically crazy parameters that got life to where it is, and these parameters need to be there for life to even exist. That's insane because life is so complicated, so intricate, so interesting. You know, it just seems so odd that that, that just lines up perfectly. When it comes to a puddle, there's nothing really interesting about a puddle or the shape of a puddle. It doesn't it doesn't stand out as unique. There's nothing about the quality of it. And we see puddles forming all the time. There's billions upon billions of puddles that are formed on this planet. Okay, so you know, it's like so what? It doesn't really meet, make the puddle itself unique. And so it just is another way to, you know, let um, I think it was John Leslie who gave you the the fire squad analogy. And this is just simply a way to respond to that. You know, it's like if the fine-tuning argument is more comparable to the firing squad analogy, not the puddle analogy. The, yeah. the puddle analogy doesn't even really capture the fine-tuning argument. And the firing squad analogy is like, if you are lined up and a bunch of expert marksmen are all lined to shoot you and they all miss, it'd be absurd for you to say, well, of course they miss. I'm still here. I mean, I wouldn't be here if they didn't miss. You're missing the entire point of what just happened. The odds of that actually happening are astronomically rare. There must have been some sort of design in that. That's far more likely than them just all just missing by accident. And so when people bring up the puddle analogy, it just shows they don't understand the fine-tuning argument. Yeah, 100%. So, I mean, that's all the bad arguments I have. Do you want to go to some of the – there's been a bunch of questions here. Do you want to go through some of these questions that were asked? Yeah, sure. Sure, go ahead. I can do right. it for um, a little while. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, we can go for like, I don't know, like 10, 15, 20 minutes. I don't know, whatever works for you. Yeah. All right, sweet. So I'll just go – I'll just start at the top over some of these questions. Um so this guy says, just subscribe. Um, yeah, he says, what should I do as a Christian when other Christians tell me that I have to reject evolution and accept intelligent design? I don't see how it matters. What, what's the data that shows you have to? I mean, you know, you just there, – there's there, – when it comes to the evolution creation debate, you don't have to accept one or the other to be a Christian. I think even the answers in Genesis acknowledges that. So when people say this, it just shows they're, they're not, they don't understand what it means to be a Christian. And there's a lot of really good logical arguments to explain this. I mean, there's a lot of good, really compatible uh, parsimonious interpretations in Genesis. So I think that's just a dumb argument. And I would always just simply ask why, why do I have to accept intelligent design? Uh, there's, you know, and typically they'll go to a theological point. Okay, so it's not so much intelligent design, it's this theological issue you have. Let's talk about that mm -hmm. instead. Because that's really where the heart is. Yeah, definitely. So I'll go through another question here. This is oh my gosh, this is an intense question. Um I hope you don't mind. It says, Okay, what are your vibes on the suicide of Christians? I've heard people say it's a one way ticket to hell, but the Bible isn't really specific on it. Well, I don't think the Bible is going to be specific on it because it's not – there is no one-size-fits-all. It really depends on what's in the heart of the person and what's going through them, and God is going to judge them on the information they had available and what uh, they used. Just see John 9, 41 or John 15, 22, where Jesus basically says, if I had not come, they would not be guilty. So it's based on the information they had. So I don't think you can just say it's always going to be X or it's always going to be Y. It's going to be different based on the individual, and I don't think we as Christians 
should say that it's a one size fits all when it comes to something like that. We don't know ultimately. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think it's a one-way ticket to hell because I mean, the Bible says the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't say blasphemy the Holy Spirit and killing yourself. So I think there's obviously, like you said, God is just, he's going to decide and be right. Um, next question says, how can free will be compatible with the B theory of time if the future already exists and there is no objective time to make choices in? Uh, that's B theory does not entail determinism. It's still me in the future that is making those decisions. It's just the ontology of how time is laid out. So in this very moment of time, I'm making decisions based on my prior experience and the information I have available. And it's still this conscious free will, still this conscious agent with free will that's making the choices. Just because there may, I may, all time might be existing simultaneously and I'm in the future making decisions as well. That doesn't mean I'm determined to make those decisions. It's still me making those decisions. So the, I never really understood that objection. It doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't really under, get, get to the grasp of what the difference between B and A theory of time are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm actually not familiar with it at all. So I'll just say you're right because you're probably right. <laughs> um, so next question says, hi, I'm grappling with the census problem of Luke. Oxford Bible Odyssey says Luke made an error. I'm actually not. I feel like I should be familiar with some Yeah, familiar with it. this is a big thing. This is probably the one thing in the Bible that uh, skeptics run to because it, it just sort of – implies that Luke made an error because he mentions the census on under Quirinius. Uh, there's a possibility it may have been, this is a that Luke wrote the Greek to be understood as this is the census before Quirinius was governor in Syria. It's possible. It's not definite. There's problems with that as well. I think Daryl Bach has the best answer is that this census began under Herod, but it was put on, it was put on hold until Quirinius came in and finished it. So, Basically, this is the census that's associated with Quirinius. It's sort of like today, you know, under a president, they started building a highway, but it wasn't finished until like two or three presidents later, and he took credit for it. You would, you could say, you associate this highway with the later president, not with the president that started it. Yeah, definitely. Um, next question here says, can you ask IP if he will respond to or debate TMM? Who's T? I don't know. I think it's the Messianic Manic, and I asked him to debate me in my blog years ago, and he said no. So I've already tried. He doesn't want to debate me. I wanted to debate him on the resurrection argument, and he decided to just simply make up things I never said, accuse me of saying things I never said, and yeah. So the guy is incredibly rude and condescending, and I already asked him if he wanted to debate me, and he said no. So I don't have to tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. That explains it. What was... What was the book by Dr. Bach that you mentioned? Daryl Bach? Um, I don't think it was a book. It was in an interview he did for the uh, uh, a YouTube channel called The Ehrman Project. I think that's where I got that from. I don't remember the exact book he mentions it in. I have to look that up. I do remember specifically he does say this in an interview for The Ehrman Project. Okay, fair enough. Um, someone says, do you think that the moral ontological argument is sound? The moral ontological argument. Yeah, actually, I don't know if I've those are two that. different arguments. Oh, the uh, modal! Oh my gosh, I totally read it wrong. My bad. It's the modal ontological. <laughs> well, you're fired. I'm illiterate. I should just quit. Yeah, of course I do. I I still think it's sound. 
uh, I think it's reasonable. Um, so yeah, I think it's a good argument. And I think the problem is, is that people just think it's too easy. Uh, you just can't prove God's existence with something so easy. And I go, well, it's still sound and it doesn't really matter. And I think that's an appeal to emotion. You may not like the fact that it's so sound, that, that it's sound and it works because it just seems too easy to you, but that's an appeal to emotion. Just go on the logic of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, next question says, what do you think are the problems with Craig's moral argument? I don't think there are problems when you get into the details of it. Um, I just think his, his syllogism is misleading. And a lot of even – I remember watching a podcast on real-life theology, and they had – I forget who they had on, but it was an ex-Christian philosopher. And he was like he, – he, he just read Craig's moral argument, and he goes, okay, now what? How do you get from A to B in this? Because you know you need to explain why if God does not exist, you know, there are no moral values and duties. So I don't – I think my main problem is it just doesn't explain enough in the premises. I think it just needs to say more, which is why I kind of put together my own. Uh, because I think it just explains more in the premises, and I think that's important. I think some of Craig's arguments, like the Kalam or his moral argument, just don't explain enough in the premises. Not that they're not sound, because he spends a hell of a lot of time explaining why they are sound. But I just think to the layman who just sort of sees those arguments, they're going to go, I don't get it. And they may not spend the time looking into it. And I think they just should have been written better, I guess. So it's a semantic issue. Yeah, fair enough. Um, this is kind of a question I have based off that. So how would you demonstrate to someone or make the argument for an objective truth? Because I think that in a lot of the times, I mean, people say, you know, our morality comes through, sorry, objective morality. Oh my gosh, I'm so off today. Um, objective morality, because I think a lot of times people will say, you know, morality comes from evolution, you know, things like that. So how do you, how do you make the argument for objective morality? They obviously don't understand what they're talking about. And I've seen, I remember seeing Aaron Ra try to debate people on this, and he doesn't understand what moral realism is because he kept jumping between moral epistemology and normative ethics, but never getting to meta-ethics. Okay. I do think we evolved to understand morality. That doesn't mean that's what morality is. For the same reason we evolved to understand science, that doesn't mean science is just a social construct. Okay, We evolved to understand these types of things, but how we understand them is not what these things are. That should be obvious. So we just evolved the cognitive faculties to understand ethics. That doesn't mean ethics is subjective. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I agree with you there. <laughs> like everything else, you're, you get great stuff. Um, next question says, what do you think of Tim Stratton's free-thinking argument for libertarian free will? I don't know. It's from my head. I have to look it up. Yeah, same, actually. I'm not familiar. Let's go to the next question. Um, have you interacted with a lot of Ehrman, Bart Ehrman's work in your research over the years? Yes. <laughs> yes, okay. I have. Okay, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, what do you I think? just, I recently, oh, I recently got it. What, what is this book I need to start reading? Shoot, what is it? It's um, like a, the sixth edition. That's what I remember because I was trying to find the most up-to-date edition, and I had to get the sixth edition because that's the one that came out recently. Um, I got I I had to I had to rent it from a library called like Redfin because I couldn't get it anywhere. Um, I don't know the, the website's not loading, but yeah, I was kind of reading through that a little bit. Um, it's this sixth edition. I'll I'll, I'll look. I'll, we'll move to the next question, and I'll come back to this. I get the title because I I've only started reading it. 
and I, I, I got distracted because I started sending stuff on uh, bail recently for an upcoming video, and so I got to get back to it. But you know, this story of my life. Yeah, fair enough. Um, will you ever do videos on like other religions, like Islam, Mormonism, JWs, things like that? Yeah, eventually. I, I really like just defending Christian. Okay, sorry, the book that I just loaded. It's New Testament 6th edition and historical introduction to early Christian writings. So I'm kind of looking through that a little bit, and I have it rented for 180 days on redshelf.com. I don't know why I said Redfin. Um, so yeah, uh, so yeah, I will look at other religions. Um, I actually, I'll, I'll say some things about Mormonism because I was reading this book recently, and it's it's not a scholar. It's just a guy who traveled around America and wrote stories. But there's one interesting chapter where he spent a little time with Mormons, and it's hilarious. I so, he went, he joined Mormons on an unregistered, unscholarly archaeological dig in Mesoamerica. And it's hilarious because they didn't get licenses. They're not trained archeologists. And so he also interviews actual Mesoamerican archeologists and they're just so annoyed by Mormons. These poor archeologists say so they're, they're working on sites down in Mexico and Mormons will spend their vacation days and they'll fly down there with metal detectors and headphones and ask to help out on the digs. And they go, no. So then they'll just see the Mormons walking around the, the sites, like looking for golden plates on the perimeters of where they're trying to do these digs. It's like, what do you do with these people? But yeah, I'd like to talk about Mormonism because it's just such a, such a bad, there's so many problems with that. Um, I think David Wood has kind of like got a corner on the market when it comes to Islam. I don't really feel a need to do that. Because I think other people have dealt with that so much, you know. Maybe eventually get to it. I, I do. I'll eventually get to the idea that Muhammad is mentioned in the Bible, which is such a dumb argument. It's like, but you know, I, I like defending Christianity. I want to go through the Old Testament, and let me explain why I'm not getting the other religions. It's because there's, excuse me, there, that has already been fulfilled. Other apologists have taken care of that. You don't see a lot of videos called the reliability of Genesis. Because not a lot of people are tackling those issues. So I'm building up a, 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 a collection of arguments, and eventually I'll do a video called The Reliability of Genesis. And I'll present all the arguments for why I think Genesis is an old and ancient document and why it's reliable. So not, not a lot of people are, are doing those types of things. You don't see a lot of uh, people doing the archaeological evidence for the Exodus. I'm looking at stuff on that right now. You don't see a lot of people refuting the idea of this, the, the polytheism in the Bible. Michael Heiser does a lot on that, but it's not really true down to the layman level. So I want to go to the areas that a lot of people haven't really gone into. And I think that's where the, the, the need is, and I'm going to try to do a lot more of the, with that before I go to, to tackle things other apologists have already gotten to. So, you know, I think these are more important to get to. That's why I did recently my video, you know, the, archaeology, the Archaeology of Eden, because not a lot of people have talked about this. So I'm going to do it. Because I'm going to try to go to the areas where people haven't been to. Yeah, I watched actually. I try to watch a lot of your videos. That's actually a really fascinating video. What you really look at there is really great stuff. Uh, next question says, "What do you think of ex existential arguments for the existence of God?" Uh, I'm not, not really a fan of them. I I get where they're coming from, but they, they they come across more as like an appeal to emotion to me in a lot of ways. So they're not really my parte. Okay, fair enough. Um, did Aaron take those books you offered to lend him at the end of your debate? No, 
No, they're in the other room. You want me to go get them? No, uh, he did not. He did not take them. I offered. He was offered them twice. Once by me, once by a guy named Matt, who he drove me there, and he walked over to Aaron specifically and handed him, and Aaron said, sure, I'll take him, set him on the table, and walked away without him. Such an odd coincidence <laughs> he forgot him twice. So I was skeptical that he forgot. <laughs> Tyler Vela also offered him a big coffee of sources. He, he didn't take that either. I was skeptical that he even wanted them. <laughs> Man, what, what was that? I'm just curious. I mean, I have the debate saved in my watch later. I just haven't gotten to it yet. There's just so many things I want to watch. What was it like debating Aaron? I had a lot of fun. He didn't have a lot of responses to the studies I brought up. Uh, the only thing I'm kicking myself on is I wish I would have gotten to the cross-examination, a bunch of questions I wanted to ask him. Because I wanted to say, you know, where's your study for this? You mentioned this in your opening talk. Where's your study for that? You mentioned this in your opening talk. You know, because he mentioned a bunch of crap for which he didn't have ev evidence for. I just didn't have time to get to it because I got carried away in the whole faith thing and the other things. And the Gregory Paul study that he brought up, which, you know, he wasn't even familiar with. Uh, but, yeah, I had a lot of fun there. I got a lot of good feedback from them. I heard from a bunch of atheists who said I won the debate. And I, I've seen even some of his own fans saying that he lost. So I, my favorite comment was someone said, you'll do even better next time. That was the full <laughs> comment. And I was like, that is the most passive aggressive way of saying you lost. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's keep going for a little, few more of these questions. Uh, this guy says, if Adam wasn't the first human, what does Paul mean in Acts 17 when he says that all nations came from one man? That means all nations came from one man. It doesn't mean all all people came from one man. It means that basically God. This is what I. This actually fits with my understanding of Genesis when it comes to the temple inauguration view. Is that Genesis one is talking about God assigning functions to how they're going to work within human civilizations. So God has established human civilizations through His theophany to human humanity. He's revealed Himself, and He has now taken the initiative to move humans from to the next phase of establishing civilizations. So I think the fact that he says that fits more with, my, with the temple inauguration view, that God has sort of established how these different parts of nature will function within human civilizations. And all nations came from that. Yeah. Uh, just reading some more questions here. Have you seen the William Lane Craig, Jeff Hester debate? No. Okay, yeah. Me either. Yeah, as you said, there's so many debates, and I'll time to get up to them all. Yeah, there's so much good content on YouTube, and I mean, you can see like like YouTubers like yourself and uh, Mike Winger. I know, or and I, like I that. fully understand really, when people. Yeah, really. Yeah, and I fully understand when people don't have time to watch my stuff. I don't scold. I try not to scold people for it because, as you said, there's so many people out there making content now. I understand if you don't have time to keep up. I'm just honored that so many people want to watch my stuff as it is. So, and I, I, you know, I feel kind of bad because there's so much content and, you know, it's hard to get to everything. So I get it. So, you know, if people don't see this or that, I try not to scold them. I just try to refer them to the video so they can watch it. Yeah, definitely. Um, question is, if you can choose another Christian apologist to debate Aaron Raw, who would that be? William Lane Craig. But Craig won't debate anybody. Wait, why not, not me? Now. Sure, you can do it. Not me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, I, I mean, agree. Yeah, I think I it was like Craig. Yeah, I agree that you know that Craig won't because he won't debate people that, who don't have doctorates. Um, I don't know. I have to think about that to think of more uh, topics. Maybe Jay Warner Wallace. 
Okay. Um, someone says, do you have a basis for your belief other than the Bible? I'm guessing that means your entire worldview, I guess. I don't know. Depends on what subject we're in. <laughs> yeah. I have different books. I have a lot of books. I have books there. I have my giant stack right there. And then I have books there. And then I have another bookshelf in the other room. And then I have, I'm going, I'm trying to get more books on my computer because I'm running out of space. So I'm, I'm starting to use Google books now. I just read, I just read a book by a Trig, Trigvay Medinger on Genesis two and three. Um, I have another book on Aboriginal religions I'm reading in there. So yeah, I got a lot of books. What do you want? Man, I don't, how much do you read? Because it seems like you have a lot of books and a lot of really great sources. I try to read 30 pages a day uh, of something, maybe 40 pages a day, depending on my time. Uh, and so that, you know, think about that. If that's, if I read 30 pages a day in, that's like 10,000 pages in a year. So how many books could I fit into that? Yeah, a lot, you know. <laughs> Can't do that. Ugh. I just, like, got out of high school, took calculus, hated math, and now whenever someone throws a math problem at me, I'm just like, no, get away. <laughs> um, yeah, not my strong suit. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any more questions here. Uh, what are your views on Calvinism? Would you consider doing a video on that one day? No. I don't want to get into that. That's just that's just too, to me, it's not that in, in big of a detail, and I want to focus more on defending Christianity than internal disputes. Now, when I bring that up, people say, well, why do you focus so much on young earth creationists versus, versus evolution? Because I have seen atheists after atheists who has abandoned their faith because they were told young earth creationism is the only thing they can believe they're a Christian, and I've seen it destroy so many Christians. And I just cannot tolerate that. So I stand against young earth creationism for the damage it causes. And I, don't sit here and tell me it doesn't cause damage. It causes so much damage. So I will willingly stand against that because I've seen what it does. But Calvinism, Arminianism, I don't think it's that big of a deal, so I don't get involved. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was talking with um, Brett – not Brett Kunkel, um, Ryan Pauly recently. I would get those two mixed up. He's talking about how, like, one of the biggest flaws we make in – Grow, like raising people, obviously, I mean, I don't have kids. You have kids, though. Like raising people is within in the Christian homes is saying, hey, giving them too much that they have to believe, you know, like talking about like, hey, if you're a Christian, you believe in, you know, Jesus is resurrected. He's divine Trinity, you know, things like that. But I mean, you know, like young earth, old earth, Calvinism, Arnizia, things like that. It's like, hey, you know, we can debate those, but you don't have to pick a side to be a Christian. You can be a Christian and believe in either or. Um Right. Topics. And it's just, there's so many scientific problems with it. I mean, it's just to the point where it's like, and I think a lot of Christians now are sort of realizing that and they're not being so dogmatic about such a view. So like when I go to churches or when I talk to people at churches, they're like, I don't really care. Like it's just the view so often is like, I get from a lot, mostly what I hear from Christians is like, I'm not sure if I believe in all of evolution, but I don't really care. And so that's what I get from so many different pastors. So it's great. And I think that's the way to go. If, and I'm ho I'm trying to encourage more of that. That it's not that big of a deal. And if once you start understanding Genesis, it's really not that big of a deal. So, and I think that's that. So I think there's some good things happening there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's like 
man, I just totally lost. I need to fire myself. I'm having an off day. Um, someone says, how's IP doing? How are you doing, Michael? Great. It's good stuff. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not good at small talk. I'm, I, 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 I hate going, I always like, when I moved to Tucson, I dreaded going to new churches because I just hate small talk. I'm just such an introvert. It's like, don't want. I don't want to talk about the weather. I don't want to talk about me. I don't like talking about myself. Please don't. Please don't make me do this. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I get that completely. Um, that's why I mean, the best thing you can do is always just ask most people about themselves. Most people love talking about themselves. Uh, next question says, "Will you ever address modalism in detail?" Modalism. Yeah, I think oh, you mean like the idea that the heresy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, probably. I mean, I, I, I kind of indirectly addressed it in my Trinity series, uh, but I might go back and redo some of those videos eventually. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I will. I'm gonna do it in in my view of defending Trinity. Yeah, great stuff. So I mean, that looks like all the questions that we basically have gone through. So I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for doing this, man. It was really awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm glad to do it. Yeah. I mean, we covered a lot of ground. We got through those bad arguments. And I just had some good Q and a, so I encourage everyone. I mean, I'm sure most people watching are really front IP fans, but if you have, if you haven't heard of him, just be sure to subscribe to him on YouTube. I have all his links in the description. So yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, I'm more than happy to do it. I like helping <laughs> channels like you grow. So if any of my followers are watching, please subscribe here and you know help out smaller channels. That's what I like to do. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And if you want to support us, you obviously subscribe, as Michael said. You can support us on Patreon, that stuff. We're trying to raise $500 a month. That's our big goal. And you can see our other websites, our social media, all that good stuff. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and just have a great night.